The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. title of our sermon this evening, Before the Throne of God, that's been the the title really of this series. This is part four, working through this text. There will be a part five as well. Uh, But we're working through Romans chapter four, the entire chapter, verses one through 11, and considering the throne room of God. Uh, And then in chapter five, we're going to consider the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ, the worship of the Lamb. Uh, So we'll begin looking at that in a couple of weeks, uh, if the Lord allows. So tonight we'll read uh, Revelation chapter four, verses one through 11, and then dig into our text together. Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes. And they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night saying, holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. This is the word of our God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you so much for this book in the Bible. I'm so grateful, uh, Lord, that you have revealed the Lord Jesus Christ. uh, The Lord Jesus Christ, both the source and the agent of revelation here. We worship and praise the Son, and we thank you for his work and the blessings applied by the Spirit, and we Glorify your name, our Father in heaven, for revealing yourself, disclosing God to us in this way, that we might worship you in a way that is fitting, in a way that is worthy of you. And we look to texts like this, Lord, they're so informative uh, for us and instructive, and we want, Lord, for our worship, uh, worship that has been inaugurated in spirit and truth by the spirit in the new creation that you've made of us, the new heart that you've given us, the spirit that you've indwelt us with. And we long for the day, Lord, when that worship will be made altogether good in the presence of our elder brother in the great assembly as we worship you uh, with glorified minds and glorified hearts unfettered by sin uh, in eternity. 
So thank you, Lord, for how this text points us to that worship. And may we continue to strive and persevere in the strength that your spirit supplies to conform our worship now to that worship. And may it be for your glory. We long, Lord, to see you high and lifted up, the train of your robe filling the heavenly temple, and long for that day when we'll worship you in eternity. So thank you, Lord, for the, the privilege, the blessing of worshiping now, you now. Uh, please, Lord, be exalted in our praise. In Jesus' name, amen. And the title of our sermon this, this evening, Before the Throne of God, part four, Revelation chapter four, verses one through 11. So uh, it's our joy this evening to be back in our sequential study of this book, The Revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, where we have now in chapter four, we've been peering through the open door into heaven, as it were, uh, and looking with John there at the throne room of Almighty God. We've spent several weeks now in consideration of John's description here of the throne room of heaven and the one seated upon the throne in verses one through seven. And tonight uh, and next week, Lord willing, we are given a glimpse then of the worship of heaven in verses eight through 11, the worship of the heavenly council that surrounds the one who is seated upon the throne. And as we noted last week, Working through the text, there's been a shift in emphasis in our text from seeing God as sovereign over the church, ruling and reigning over his people, enthroned in the worship of the church, and that sovereign authority represented in the presence of 24 elders seated upon 24 thrones, representing the 12 sons of Israel, the 12 apostles, representing the church in its fullness, now shifting to an emphasis on God's sovereign rule and reign over creation enthroned in the worship of all creation, represented in the presence of the four living created beings in the midst of a sea of glass like crystal. So as we come back to our text now in verse eight, the worship service has already begun uh, and we uh, come into the worship of God as it were in verse eight. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within and they do not rest day or night saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. So to, in consideration of our text, to, to borrow a phrase from Jonathan Edwards, uh, this is the end for which God created the world. The, the end for which God created the world is for his own glory, for his own praise, for his own worship. The manifestation of his glory and his own glory compelling that which he has created to praise and worship. His own, the manifestation of his own glory compelling that which he has cre- created to adoration and joy. What is the chief end of man? Catechism would ask, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What are they doing in the throne room of heaven? They are glorifying God and enjoying him, enjoying his presence. The God who created all things enthroned in praise and worship. I want us to think for a moment in consideration of this text and the worship service that's going on in heaven. I want us to think for a moment about the nature of that worship together, the nature of worship. Glory 
glory is something that God has to himself. He has in himself, within himself. The creation doesn't add to God's glory. The creation doesn't contribute anything to God's glory. You and I don't contribute anything to God's glory. God is fully and perfectly, completely glorious in and of himself. He possesses glory. The Hebrew noun kavod is most often the word that we translate glory in the Old Testament. And that word refers to that which is weighty, that which is heavy, uh, that which is great has weight or heaviness associated with it. The, the New Testament Greek word is doxa, and that's a word that's most often translated glory. And in fact, doxa is the word that is most often used to translate kavod in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now first, that word, the word for glory, refers to an inherent or an in, um, internal glory, an internal quality. God is within himself glorious. And that word glory communicates something of the excellence of his person. We might speak of it today in terms of gravity or gravitas, someone who has gravitas, something weighty, something heavy. But it refers to the excellence of his person, his inherent dignity, his inherent worth, his inherent value. The value of a thing in the ancient Near East was often measured by its weight. That which was light was often worthless or of questionable or of little value. Uh, and so God, in contrast, was described as kavod, infinitely heavy. Heavy uh, communicated weight, communicated value, communicated worth. And so God was considered infinitely heavy, infinitely weighty, infinitely great, infinitely beautiful, infinitely worthy of ascriptions of infinite value. First, the word refers to an inherent or an internal quality. Second, however, the word group translated as glory in the Bible is also used to describe the manifestation or the display of that internal quality. Edwards again, it refers to the exhibition, the emanation, or the communication of the internal glory. Understand what Edwards is saying. God has glory in and of himself. He is glorious, infinitely so. He's glorious. But glory can also refer to the emanation of that, the, the outshining, the, the exhibition of that, the communication of that internal glory. Hence, Edward says, it's often signified by an effulgence, a shining brightness, a radiation, uh, an emanation of beams of light. So we see in Ezekiel, God's glory described as in, in the brightness of the rainbow around the throne of God. I believe that's Ezekiel chapter 10. He describes it there as the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God, an emanation of God's glory. Now, seen, as it were, in the brightness or the emanation of light surrounding the throne of God. The temple was filled with the brightness of the glory of God. God's glory referred to as brightness. Moses' face would shine when he came down off the mountain. Why? Because he had been in, in the presence of the glory, glory of God. Revelation 21, verse 23, the new Jerusalem has no need of the sun, no need of the moon. Why? Because the glory of God illuminates it and the lamb is its light. In other places, the glory of God used to describe his attributes, his, his goodness, his grace, or his mercy. When Moses asked to see God's glory, 
God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Moses asked to see God's glory, and God said, I'll make my goodness pass before you. God glorifies his name in redeeming his people. Salvation is to the praise of his glory. Right? So in other words, the glory of God is not only that, not only that which he has within himself, God's glory is something that is revealed. In the words of Edwards, it is something that is communicated, something that is manifested, something that is emanated. And therefore, because it is revealed, because it is communicated, God's glory is that which may be experienced or that which may be observed by his creation. That glory which is revealed is often referred to as a revelation of light, as we've said. Either light to our sight or light to our heart a light to our understanding, a light to our mind. Consider these texts with me. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, what is he saying? In other words, all, all will be made to see and to understand and to, ap- to ha- apprehend or to comprehend in some sense his infinite excellence. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth. In chapter 2, 2 Corinthians, uh, chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, listen, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus can say to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the outshining. Jesus Christ is the refulgence. He's the radiance of God's glory. Of God's own inherent glory. He is the the express image of his person. That's Hebrews chapter 1, right? The radiance, the outshining of the brightness of God's glory. It's that manifestation, that emanation, that revelation that is at the heart of passages that speak of God glorifying himself. And subsequently, if that revelation is a revelation of God in his glory, then subsequently those passages have to do also with God being glorified. The experience or the observance of the creation of God's own inherent glory. And that's what we see going on in Revelation chapter 4. His glory involves making known the divine excellence. His glory involves making known or revealing the divine greatness. And it is the manifestation of the divine glory that calls for or demands a response from the creature. It is the emanation of his own glory that demands a response of the creation. The response of the divine revelation is worship. The response of the divine revelation is praise. Listen to Edwards again. In the creatures knowing, esteeming, loving, rejoicing in, and praising God, the glory of God is both exhibited and acknowledged or experienced or comprehended. His fullness is received and then his fullness is returned. Here is both emanation and remination. I think Edwards made that word up to communicate what he's talking about here. Emanation and a re-emanation from the creation, the refulgence. There is effulgence 
and refulgence. The refulgence shines upon and into the creature and is reflected back to the luminary. The beams of glory come from God, are something of God, and are refunded back again to their original so that the whole is of God and in God and to God, and he is the beginning and the middle and the end. Praise God, right? The creation of the world, think with me now, the creation of the world is an emanation of his glory. The creation of everything that we see, everything that we know, the creation of us, you and I, are, it's an emanation of his glory. It's a communication or a revelation of himself. And now the creation has the joy, the blessed privilege of remanating <laughs> that emanation uh, to return the glory as it were. Uh, and we see that in texts like Psalm 19, 19. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. The firmament shows his handiwork, right? That, that communication reveals the source And the source is all that is good and true and beautiful. And that glory, as it is revealed, that glory is returned. And we are said to glorify him. When we glorify God, it's a return, a return of that revelation. When the heart and soul and mind of man is so enraptured with the the, the effulgence of his glory that man returns or reflects back those beams of glory in the form of adoration and awe and honor and praise and worship, exalting God as his chief good and the object of his greatest joy, the object of all of his satisfaction. 19th century Anglican, William Temple defined worship in this way. He said, worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of the conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of the mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of his will, of will to his purpose. All this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. I like that. That's what's going on in Revelation chapter four. That right? An earnest and compelled response to revelation. It's not something that God needs, mind you. He didn't create because he needed anything. Paul told the pagans in Acts 17, God is not worshiped with man's hands as though he needed anything. He doesn't need anything. He is ase, independent, self-sufficient, sufficient within himself, Creation, creation is simply the object to which the abundance of the divine glory is communicated. You can think about God as being so abundant in glory, overflowing, overspilling in glory that creation is the result because creation is the object of the overflow or the abundance of God's glory. And one means, it's one means whereby the divine glory emanated is the divine glory enjoyed and the divine glory returned. Thought of the example this week of the Webb Space Telescope. You've seen the pictures. It's pretty remarkable. The images are, are just absolutely amazing. It's a picture. Those pictures, the Webb Space Telescope, those pictures are pictures of the heavens returning or declaring the glory of God. 
the deep field image that came out. Remarkable. They said that field, that image, was like taking a grain of sand, holding it between your fingers at arm's length, and that picture is um, a representation of that much of the known universe, like a grain of sand (laughs) held at arm's length. Very small, very small field, in other words, very small point, very small segment of the known universe. And yet that one picture contains thousands, not thousands of stars, thousands of galaxies that contain untold numbers of stars. And that is the size of a grain of sand held at arm's length. That's one small fraction of the known universe. Multiple galaxies, a multiple, multitude of galaxies, innumerable stars, in, even more innumerable planets. So distant, so distant, that until that picture was taken, no eye has ever seen that why does it exist? There are, there are areas in the universe created by God that no eye will ever behold, and yet they exist. Why do they exist? They are a return of the effulgence of God's glory. They are there for the enjoyment of God in and of himself in his own glory, <laughs> for the enjoyment of God. Now, all of all creation, of all that has been made, there has been one created thing made, actually made, in the imago Dei, in the image of God. One. One created being was specifically created for the purpose of the greatest return, right? The greatest remination, the greatest reflection, the greatest refulgence. And that created being is man, made in the image of God. And having fallen into sin, man finds supreme worth or supreme value in himself rather than God. Can you see what a, a, a tremendous treason is idolatry? <laughs> and man is by nature an idolater. But even this is not outside the scope of God's sovereignty not outside the scope of God's plan, God decreeing even the fall for the ultimate glory of his own son. That the son might not merely have the return or the refulgence of angels, but rather the son might be enthroned in the return, in the refulgence of redeemed people, a redeemed people to the praise of the glory of the infinite worth of his mercy and his grace. Owen calls it a happy fault, (laughs) a happy fault that the son would be so enthroned in praise. Uh, One day, brothers and sisters, our worship will be a fitting response to revelation. Uh, This side of eternity, um, with fallen hearts and minds, uh, we long for that day. One day, our worship will be a fitting, appropriate response by God's work. Um, by God's grace, flowing, that worship flowing from glorified minds, glorified hearts, glorified natures, glorified bodies. That's what our worship now should be aiming at. When we worship together, we should be aiming for that worship. We should be pursuing that worship. That's the worship that Revelation chapter 4 represents. That's what's going on in Revelation chapter 4. 
the praise of those in the heavenly court begins, and it begins first with an acknowledgement of God's holiness, second with an acknowledgement of God's worthiness. And that praise that erupts there is not because God uh, structured the throne room and he made this guy and he said, I want you to do this, and he made this guy and I want you to do this. God created, God created, and from the creation, there is an earnest um, response to divine revelation of who God is. There's a, an earnest response in worship. And so what we, what we see, uh, example in, in verse 8, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is to is to come. They're not reading from a script per se. That is the response to the divine revelation. Holy, holy, holy. They see God and they erupt in worship. And it is uh, an earnest and it's compelled, but it's compelled by the divine revelation. It's compelled by who God is. It's an eruption of the heart, of the mind, of the soul in the worship of God that is a reflection of all that he has revealed himself to be to us, the creation. And we respond in that kind of worship. That's what our worship on Sunday morning should be like. On Sunday night, we should return in, in our understanding, in our comprehension, in our apprehension of what God has revealed to us. It should be the overflow of the heart an overflow of the mind, an overflow of the faculties of our soul to worship him in response to that revelation and to do that from a heart that is filled with gratitude and with joy and with love and with adoration. Edward said the, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. That's what's going on in Revelation chapter four. Now first, there's an acknowledgement here in Revelation chapter four of God's holiness in verse eight. Holy, 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 the Lord God almighty who was and is and is to come. We find that same scene, a similar scene, in the vision of Isaiah the prophet from Isaiah chapter 6. Turn back there with me and let's look at that together. Isaiah chapter 6. We're given a vision, essentially, of the same scene, worship in the throne room of God. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6, look at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. Now these four living beings here, Isaiah calls them seraphim, they're not sinful like we are. <laughs> they haven't rebelled against God as we have. And yet, in the throne room of God, they cover their face with their wings and they shield their eyes from a direct view of him. They cover their eyes to shield themselves from a direct view of God. They're not sinful like we are. They haven't rebelled as we have. Why? They also cover their feet. Similar to Moses, for example, being told to take off his sandals because the place wherein he stood was holy ground. The ground made holy by the presence of God Moses was to acknowledge Moses was to acknowledge his creatureliness by taking off his sandals because he was born of dust and he was connected to the dust so to speak he was to stand barefoot on that ground a ground made holy by the presence of God so these creatures around the throne these created beings 
intimately aware of their creatureliness in the presence of God, they cover their face and cover their feet. Again, a response of the creation to the divine glory. They cover their face and their feet. Why? Because God is holy. God is holy. It's a response, a return of the divine revelation. It's an earnest, heartfelt um, worship, if you will. A response of the creature to the holiness of God. A return of the divine effulgence. And one cried to another, verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The hymn is called the Trisagion, meaning three times holy. That repetition, a particular and important form of emphasis in Scripture, it's often that something important in the Bible is repeated for emphasis. Truly, truly, I say unto you, right? In Revelation 8, the angel announces, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. What is he emphasizing? Woe. (laughs) Jeremiah's sarcastic repetition in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 4, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. But only once in Scripture is an attribute of God repeated in this way for emphasis. And we see it here with respect to God's holiness. Holy, holy, holy. Verse 4, the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. R.C. Sproul said that unlike many who take up space in the professing church today, The inert matter of doorposts, the inanimate thresholds, the wood and metal that could neither hear nor speak had the good sense to be moved by the presence of God. And what did Isaiah do? What was Isaiah's return, if you will? His response to the divine effulgence. Isaiah, verse 5, said, Woe is me, for I'm undone. Woe is me, I'm undone. Isaiah himself shook when he saw the glory of God, when he acknowledged the the holiness of God. When Isaiah had a glimpse of the holiness of God, Isaiah pronounced the judgment upon himself. Woe is me, I am ruined. I am wrecked, I am unraveled, I am coming apart at the seams. That's a return, if you will, of the divine revelation, isn't it? That's a return. Repentance. An acknowledgement of our own sinfulness is a return of the divine revelation. Isaiah said, because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And as long as we can compare ourselves some way to other men or to other creatures, we maintain some ill-conceived sense of our own virtue or some ill-conceived sense of our own worth. But the moment that Isaiah saw himself in relationship to the ultimate standard, at the moment that Isaiah saw himself in the revelation of the divine glory, he was ruined. He was undone. He was morally and spiritually undone, unraveled. God revealed to Isaiah his own holiness, his own purity, his own virtue, and to truly see and to truly understand and to truly acknowledge God's own holiness is at the same time to see your own lack. It is to be undone like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Just to be like Peter 
seeing Jesus at the boat, Luke chapter 5, depart from me for I am an unclean, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Isaiah's response to the divine revelation in this instance was <laughs> an acknowledgement of his own sinfulness. Verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with the tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth with it and he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. It's the mercy of God, isn't it? The mercy and grace of God. Your sin purged. Isaiah is forgiven to his core. Verse 8, I also heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then Isaiah said, here am I, send me. So here, what is the return from the creature? What is the refulgence, if you will, of the divine revelation? It is service, mission, send me, employ me, use me, right? To be one who is sent. That service itself is an act of worship, is an act of gratitude, is an act of adoration, is an act of praise and love and devotion, Calvin, at the time of the Reformation, debated Roman Catholics on their use of images or icons in their worship. It's a violation of the second commandment. And Catholics tried to make a distinction between latreia and douleia. A distinction between a word they translated as worship, latreia, and a word they translated as service, douleia. And Rome would say that they offer Dulea to images or they offer Dulea to Mary, but never Latreia. One, that's not true. Not true. Two, Calvin called it a distinction without a difference. It's a distinction without a difference. Both involve worship and both involve service. In fact, the word Latreia is often translated service in Scripture as well as worship. We often translate both words in both ways. Both are a return. Both are a refulgence, a a remination, to use Edward's word, of the divine revelation of his glory. Both are a means by which we are said to glorify God. In Revelation 4, verse 8, you have these four living created beings around the throne of God. They're worshiping God and they're serving God, and they are singing without rest, day or night, holy, holy, holy. A response to the divine glory. Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. But that word holy, there is a moral, a moral component to the word. Holy is that which is distinct from profane. Holy is that which is distinct from common. It distinguishes that which is righteous from that which is unrighteous, that which is good from that which is evil. So there is a moral component to the word holy, but there's also an ontological component to the word holy. There's also a component of the word that has to do with ontology or being. To deny the holiness of God is to consign God to the realm of creation. It's to say that he's like us, It's to communicate that God is simply a greater version of us. And it's a doctrine of demons. It's a doctrine of demons. To say that God is holy is to say that God is entirely other in his being, that he is transcendent, altogether not like us. Many in the professing church today have busied themselves creating 
and then worshiping a God made after their own image. And it is a fundamental, uh, you can't have a more fundamental error than that, than the person of God. They've worshiped, they've made, created, and then worshiped the God after their own image. Psalm 50, listen to this from the psalmist. These things you have done, God said, and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God. Consider this, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. Whoever offers praise glorifies me. In other words, whoever offers praise reflects the divine glory, returns the divine effulgence. He praises, whoever praises me glorifies me and to him who orders his conduct aright, the one who returns that glory, the divine revelation in service, the one who serves and adores and worships and loves and puts his faith and trust in and commits himself to God, the one who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. As holy, God is entirely, entirely unique in his being. That's communicated in our text. Entirely unique in his being. First, he is Lord God Almighty, Pantocrator in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. And second, he is one, the one who was and is and is to come. First, the Almighty refers to the omnipotence of God. He is all-powerful. He is the Lord of hosts, El Shaddai, El Gabor. Almighty means that he cannot be stopped from completing his purposes or carrying out his word. All-powerful. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35 he does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Isaiah 46 verse 9, for I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. His holiness referring to ontology. Do you see? Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my Counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Almighty. Second, God transcends time. He is the one who was, and who is, and who is to come. God is not only holy in that he transcends creation, he is holy in that he transcends time. And what he is now, he is eternally is the one who was and is and is to come. He's sovereign over the unfolding of history. But more than merely sovereign over the script of history, God himself is external to time. He is timelessly eternal. He does not change as though he has a past and a future. If you have a past and a future, you're changing. God is external to time. He is timeless. He is eternal he is one with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Psalm 90. God inhabits eternity. Isaiah 57. God is not subject then to a succession of moments. We were talking about that this morning in living our lives, each succession of moments uh, in the presence of God, quorum Deo. 
God is not subject. He's not subject to a succession of moments. He's not God in process. A God who is becoming, he is I am. Exodus chapter 3. He is I am, the one who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. Boethius said, the whole simultaneous and perfect possession of boundless life. God is life. He has life within himself. That's the meaning of I am. I am, as the name of God, is a declaration of his self-existence. It's a declaration of his immutability. All of life is seated in and finds its source in God himself. God himself is life. And who God says that he is to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, I am that I am, is then followed by a revelation of who he is to Moses in Exodus chapter 34. When Moses asked to see his glory, the Lord, verse 5, says, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord displaying his glory proclaims his name. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. In other words, who he is, who he was, and who he always will be. And what is the return of the creature? Right? What is the refulgence? What did Moses do? What was Moses compelled in earnestness to do? Verse 8. Moses made haste, bowed his head toward the earth, and worshipped. Right? The creature compelled by the divine revelation to offer up his heart, his mind, his comprehension, his understanding, his knowledge, to offer up in response to that glory to offer God worship. Then he said, if now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are stiff-necked people. It's like Isaiah, I'm undone, a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. But Lord, we acknowledge our stiff-necked ways. Go among us, right? Save us. He says, pardon. Pardon our iniquity and our sin. Take us as your inheritance. So not only is the return of the divine effulgence a return of worship and of praise and of adoration, but it's a return of longing and of desire and of a heart to know him and to be with him and to cling to him in faith, right? Much more on that could be said. First, the worship of the heavenly court involves an acknowledgement of God's holiness. Second, the worship of the heavenly court involves an acknowledgement of God's worthiness. And we're going to look at that next week. With respect to worship in Revelation chapter 4, brothers and sisters, we're to, we're to take in what God has graciously revealed to us. He's revealed himself to us in his word. And there are glories uh, there in his word, 10 pound diamonds uh, we can walk through there and pick up <laughs> uh, that we might know God, uh, that we might see him enthroned in his glory. 
And we must, through the Word of God, uh, see ourselves in light of that divine revelation for who we are as sinful, fallen creatures, nevertheless, wondrously and gloriously saved by the grace of God through the substitutionary sacrifice of His own Son in our behalf. But we must be moved by that, allow ourselves to be humbled by it and to be moved by it and then compelled by the divine disclosure to the return and the refulgence of worship and praise. We must aim for the highest worship of which we are capable. And adoration, adoration, which is the most selfless act of which we are capable. C.S. Lewis says that we are spiritually nearsighted, spiritually nearsighted. He said, our Lord finds our desires never too strong, but rather too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. That infinite joy is a revelation to us of who he is. That infinite joy is him, is God, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Our greatest satisfaction will be found in him. We fool around with drink and sex and ambition when that infinite joy is offered to us like an arrogant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. The only way that we correct that is obviously by the grace of God, uh, by his grace at work in us, um, by his spirit to illumine our understanding, to change our hearts, to renew our minds. But we repent of that by uh, submersing ourselves in the divine revelation and by taking in his word, that revelation, and by uh, allowing it to humble us to receive it with meekness and then to return that splendor, uh, to return that divine revelation in worship and in praise and in gratitude and in adoration and in joy and in love and in hope and in faith. Do you see? And must allow the word of God to compel us by his spirit to find our greatest satisfaction in him alone. Amen. That's, that's the, the gracious antidote, if you will, to idolatry is finding our satisfaction in him. When someone pines after something they don't have here, you know, I don't have that job I want, or don't have that husband I want, or I don't have that wife I want, or I don't have this, or I don't have that, or whatever, whatever our temporal circumstances preach to us, right? The divine remedy to that is find our satisfaction in him. And then to return that revelation in worship and praise and adoration, to allow ourselves to be satisfied in him, to find our uh, enjoyment in him, 
to love him and to adore him. That's going to come by his spirit through the word. We need to ask God for it. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we ask you for that now. We are short-sighted, no doubt about it. And we bemoan now, Lord, our short-sightedness as we witness the worship of heaven and the unfettered, um, compelled response of the creation there to return worship and praise and adoration and love and joy for the divine revelation and look forward, Lord, to one day doing that ourselves unencumbered by sin and would ask, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us through your word by your spirit even now. So graciously, Lord, having saved us and redeemed us to that end, even now, Lord, cause us to grow in our knowledge of you, cause us to grow in our knowledge of our own sinfulness uh, in light of that revelation, cause us to grow in our understanding of who you are and what you have done, and Lord, to grow in worship that is befitting uh, such a revelation of who you are and what you've done. We want, Lord, we long to worship you as you are worthy to be worshiped. And we know that we fall far short, Lord. Please forgive us uh, the things that we allow to cloud our view or to cloud our judgment. And Lord, cause us by your spirit uh, to worship you in a way that is worthy of you. May it be to your praise and glory. And Lord, we pray that soon we will join the worship of heaven and glorify you as those do that we see around the throne in Revelation 4. May you be exalted in praise for all eternity. You are worthy. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.